0: I'm LZ Granderson, and this is Life Out Loud. It's January 20th, 2022. Four years ago, this date, comedian Bob Smith died from Lou Gehrig's disease. He said when he found out, he told his doctor, But I don't even like baseball. <laughs> he was a really funny guy.
1: I think what I bring to stand up comedy is a point of view of a gay man that isn't the victim, isn't the butt of the joke. I'm making the joke. And that's an important thing.
0: Bob was the first openly gay comedian to perform in The Tonight Show. He was also the first openly gay comedian to have his own HBO comedy special.
1: And you know, Tom and I are becoming more militant. We want the same rights as straight couples to hold hands and make a public display of affection, even if we do avoid intimacy in the
0: privacy of our own home. After the disease kind of stopped him from being able to perform his stand-up live, he really focused more of his time on writing. He's written a handful of books. He was a writer for Ozan. He worked for Bad TV. The reason why I wanted to talk about his life is because I wanted to acknowledge it because it really mattered. It certainly mattered to me. His book, Openly Bob, was one of those books I kind of kept with me when I was in a closet as I was trying to figure out who I was versus who I was supposed to be. And one of my favorite passages from his book, Openly Bob, actually kind of hits on this point really well. He wrote During my first few months in New York, I tried venturing out to gay bars in the mysterious belief that in an environment where I felt awkward and uncomfortable was the perfect place for someone to find me attractive. I remember that passage because it is so freaking spot on. Like, there are so many of us who don't like being in the bars or who don't like doing a lot of drinking, but we do so because we're told we're supposed to. And even though we're not looking like our best selves, somehow we're supposed to romantically fall in love with someone who's conceived through all of that. It's kind of crazy, but that's kind of like the hamster wheel. I think a lot of us are on in that conversation. And Bob totally nailed that in that passage. And he nails a lot of that in his comedy. I love being a Boy Scout. I can't believe it. You know, their motto is be prepared. And nobody's more prepared than a gay scout. <laughs> my swiss army knife had a melon baller and garlic press i just wanted to acknowledge bob's life because you know it meant something to me and i'm sure it meant something to a lot of other people and that's really the focus of season two of life out loud trying to find these nuanced conversations and these lives that you know have fallen between the cracks but really mattered and really helped us in our journey as a community and so the team and I wanted to start this journey by spending time talking first about life in small town America, because we really don't spend a lot of time talking about that. We spend a lot of time talking about New York and LA and, you know, Atlanta, Chicago, et cetera. but there are a lot of good people who don't want to leave the rural parts of the country and they're happy there. That's one of the reasons why I'm glad we got to talk with Chastin Buttigieg, perhaps you've heard of him, his husband, Pete Canaret for president.
1: It has been an honor and a privilege to share my husband with the rest of this country. You're so welcome. (laughs) And I am so proud that the same person you saw on the debate stage, the same person you saw at a town hall, is the same person that comes home to me every night.
0: Shaston's from a small town in America, Traverse City, Michigan. And even though he ran away when he was younger, One of the cool things about seeing Chaston's evolution over the years is that once he and Pete became parents, they decided to buy a house back in Traverse City, Michigan. Families there, but also Chaston really loved the way that he grew up. You know, not the homophobia part, of course, but more open spaces and less traffic and less noise, more of a tight-knit community. He enjoyed that and he wanted his kids to be able to experience that as well. The other person we talked to, Ariana DeBose, just recently hosted Saturday Night Live.
2: Ladies and gentlemen,
0: Pose. Ms. Anita from West Side Story, she also grew up in a small town. And then wrapping things up is a brief conversation we have with GLAAD President Sarah Kate Ellis, who we wanted to have on because the organization spent so much time trying to figure out a way to expand and broaden LGBTQ stories. But before we talk to Ariana and Sarah Kate, we're going to start off talking with Chaston and what surprised him and Pete most about being fathers. First of all, my friend, it is so good to hear your voice. You know, we haven't seen each other since HRC in Vegas, (laughs) pre-pandemic. Oh, wow. I'm trying to think when that even was, in the before times. In the before times, exactly, because I saw your whole face and not just your eyeballs. (laughs) So, so it was way before. (laughs) Well, it's nice to chat with you. It is very nice to chat with you.
1: So, how are you feeling? Oh, man. I mean... I I forget where I I read it, but life with twins, I've been saying I am emotionally fulfilled
0: and physically exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest surprise that hits you up beside your head becoming a dad. I think it's just like there is no rest.
1: And right now they're teething. So there's literally no rest. But just how full your days become. And how tired your body can be. I mean, I thought I was tired, you know, with the the presidential campaign and (laughs) we've done a lot of stressful things and, uh, you know, exhausting things. And this is the hardest I've ever worked in my entire life. Oh, baby, you're just getting
0: started. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, I will offer you some unsolicited advice. Please. And that is our jobs as parents is to be close enough so that our kids can always push us away.
1: Oh, and that's my biggest fear already, you know, was like, oh, my God, one day you're going to talk and walk and and be mean to me. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) right now I just, you know, I can like step out of the house for five minutes, you know, and just like go to the coffee shop. Like sometimes we just have to like tap out for five or ten minutes and I'll be like on the way to the coffee shop and I'll see a kid in the stroller and I can't wait to get back to the house to see them. You know, just that in love with them. They're so...
0: They're so perfect, but so needy. <laughs> so I'm tired. I understand. I completely understand. So I'm so glad you're here. Because we're, we're having this discussion about LGBTQ presence in small town slash rural America. Great. And so you know, you came to mind immediately because we're both Michiganders. I'm originally from Detroit. You were born in Traverse City. Yeah, share with the listeners a little bit about what Traverse City looks like what it feels like i mean i've been i've been to you know i've gotten the cherries up there i've gone fly fishing (laughs) i got i I know about traverse city but for the (laughs) listeners can you describe it a little bit
1: yeah absolutely so you know we we kind of describe places like traverse city in the midwest um you know it's 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 Obviously, a city, so it's a little more progressive, but we call these places like the blueberry and the raspberry jello, right? It's uh, um, one of the biggest cities in, in northern Michigan, north of Grand Rapids. I think it might be the biggest, you know, where I grew up just outside of the city. So when I thought of the city, I was thinking of, you know, downtown and Main Street, which is like a few blocks long, right? But that was the city. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up as a 4 H kid, uh, you know, more of a country boy. Um and even now, you know, Pete and I uh have a home there and it's it was very interesting this last fall. You know, it's one of those places in America where you you drive down the road and it's a it's a Biden sign and a Trump sign, a Biden sign and a Trump sign. It's a a very politically diverse community. Everything's a little bit slower up there. The people are extremely kind, it's very Midwestern. But you know, I was going to school with kids who lived a very sort of what I thought was like a cosmopolitan lifestyle living in the city. Um, and, uh, just outside the city, you know, I was, you know, feeding my cows on the way to school every morning and participating in 4-H. I was on the bowling team. Our family, uh, put a lot, uh, into hard work. And so spent a lot of time with the family, um, you know, either, uh, down at the barn or, uh, helping out around the house or in dad's garage. So it was just this very, um, I guess you could say like quaint childhood, but, Um, As we're going to talk about today, there wasn't really a lot of room for differentiation from what people considered to be normal. Um, If you just were a good Christian country boy up there. And I think that is some of the thinking up there still.
0: You know, every movie that I can think of or even conversations in cities that I lived in, like Atlanta or New York or L.A., um, whenever I chat with someone who's from a city or a, a town very similar to the one you're describing, it's always with this sense of, I'm so glad I got away from there. Yeah. Um, when you hear you know, people who are LGBTQ speak like that, knowing that you've moved back essentially, or at least still loved it enough to buy a home there, yeah. how does that make you feel?
1: This is funny. So I was just home for the holidays and uh, ran into um, a younger gay couple um, while I was downtown and they were supposed to go to university but the last two years has really messed up you know needing to be out of Traverse City away at university um, and the ways they were talking about oh I don't want to be here I wish I could get out like I said you know when I was growing up it felt like there was this sense that you just had to get out like if you were going to make it if you were going to do something with your life then you would leave and they were like oh yeah 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 and I think when you're young, like, there's always going to be a sense of, like, I got to get out, right? And you just want to get away and see the world and be away from your family and everything that you've known to experience something new. But it's when it's sort of kind of rooted in this, like, well, this place is stuck in the past. This place isn't progressing. This place isn't LGBTQ plus friendly. Um, then it starts to hurt because I feel like there are so many people invested in that progress. I never thought that I would move back to Traverse City, but I I wanted to make sure that our, you know, our kids were going to be really close to family and and I really love my family and I, I want to be close to them as well. And so um, that's why we made the decision to, to, to put home there.
0: Why did you think you was never going to go back?
1: Well, because I ran away when I was younger, you know, and I had all of these ideas of what Traverse City was. Um, and, to, and for me, it, it just wasn't a place for me. And literally at the time, you know, when I was younger, it was simply unsafe in certain pockets of northern Michigan to be out you know, to be a, a young queer kid exploring what it means to be gay. And and, and now, you know, I, I put stock in lots of other things, um, family, time, nature. And the thing about home is that so many people have invested the time and the resources and the energy into making sure that Traverse City becomes this safe place where everyone feels like they belong. And just in the last, I'd say, you know, 15 years it is remarkable every time I come home what I see even the existence of pride like we didn't have pride there when I was younger and now there's up north pride um, and people put these signs out at the end of their driveways out in rural Michigan with a little rainbow on it that says up north pride you know it'll be a driveway right across the street from the guy who's got 14 trump flags in his front yard but the bravery of people just to put those signs up now says, you know, like we're we're gonna we're gonna make this place
0: somewhere that we want to be and where we want people to feel like they belong. It's such a two edged sword, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, it's so somewhat unfair to ask queer people in general, but certainly young queer people, to stay in areas like a Traverse City or, you know, a Selma, Alabama or Meridian, Mississippi mm-hmm. or wherever stay there and help create change, but you're going to have to suffer (laughs) in some ways or escape and go live your best life and let those areas never change. Yeah. You know,
1: when I was talking to these kids, it's not like you have to stay, (laughs) you know, like we will only change (laughs) if you stay. I think you got to do what's best for you. Right. And when I was 18, what was best for me was to get out. Part of wanting progress is recognizing that you just might have to be part of the solution, right? That Traverse City is not going to become what we want it to be if we all just keep passing the buck and saying like, man, if only it would change, you know, someone's got to do it. And of course, you don't want to pressure people into being part of that progress, but there are certain ways that we can ask people to be part of that progress. And there are certain people that we have to be extremely grateful for, for deciding to move back home To invest in home, you know, I have friends I grew up with who they all left, they all went in multiple different directions, and they all came back and they opened up small businesses and they're starting families there, and they are part of the progress, right? They're 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 part of the solution by deciding to invest in the city. You know, some of them run for city council, um, and some of them are simply growing families that believe in things like equality um, for everyone.
0: What do people usually get wrong? Or what is the biggest misconception in terms of being LGBTQ in small town America? Oh, I think there are
1: so many things, so many misconceptions, right? Uh, I think one of them is that people in the Midwest or people in small town America don't want the same things that, you know, people in bigger cities want. I certainly felt this in a way on the campaign trail when certain people were debating our level of gayness or queerness. Um, whether we were committed to the same
0: things that other people were committed to. Give us an example, like what would, what would be like a differentiating point that was brought up to you or you became aware of? We talk about this on the campaign trail where, you know,
1: where I'm from, I'm not gonna get anywhere. If the person that I'm trying to convince to support marriage equality or to support a gay man's presidential campaign or, or to support basic human and civil rights, I'm not gonna get anywhere with them by beating them over the head or making them feel smaller, you know? Calling them a bigot, made them feel um, like they're on the wrong side of history, telling them that they've done something wrong.
0: But what if that's all true? <laughs> what if they are a bigot? What no, if they exactly. are on the wrong no, side no, of no, history? No, 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 sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean,
1: I mean, oftentimes, the, the people that we're trying to convince, right? That's <laughs> the purpose of the pudding. But I, I don't think I can get anywhere with them by saying, like, well, you're a bigot. And they'll just immediately turn off, and they don't want to hear what I have to say or what I'm trying to sell. And so – in in parts of the country you got to invest in in conversations and uh ways in which we make people feel a little bigger hearted like we're bringing them along and that can be really exhausting work because you don't always want to be doing the work yourself right i don't want to be out here every day asking for you to let me donate blood and marry the person that i love and be able to adopt children and every single day wake up on you know on the internet and see people debating my basic civil rights but Part of the reason that I like being in this position is because I can have those conversations with people especially back home and you know every now and then you have a breakthrough but I think there was this misconception that if you're from certain areas of the country where you might have to be a little bit more guarded about your identity your family your relationships your politics or practice those things in certain ways where you are definitely committed to the progress of the community but Having to do it in a way where your toolkit looks just a little bit different than people who can live a little bit more openly and freely and loudly, whether it's in public or online, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not committed to the same things. I think sometimes our toolkits just look a little different.
0: Do you think we get that part? You know, like, yeah, it's great that. You know, we're, we can get to have these higher level conversations in terms of equality, but there's still so many of us in the community that are still just trying to feel safe walking down the street.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think there's a huge misconception, even even in the community and sort of what I was getting at getting at earlier. That I mean, when we were on the campaign trail, we would meet people who would drive seven, eight hours away from where they live to come see Pete and I on the campaign trail because they didn't feel safe enough in their hometown. Uh, they didn't want anyone to see them there potentially as a couple, or even supporting the gay guy, because they were afraid that they would lose their job, or that you know they would lose their 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 standing in the, in their community if they were outed. I mean, there are still people in this country who simply cannot live an open and authentic life, and I think we forget that with all of the progress that we've seen, there are many people um, who that progress has not reached. Um, there are many people in this country, especially young people, um, who don't feel comfortable enough to live an authentic and open life because of, of many things, right? Um, political endangerment, personal endangerment. When I learned about Matthew Shepard, I thought, that's going to happen to me. If somebody finds out, you know, that definitely seemed like a feasible thing that would happen in Northern Michigan, that if somebody found out, mm. that that they would do the same. And even though I have seen... My life has been so blessed and I've seen progress in, in many ways. You know, these, these beautiful kids, this, this ring on my finger. I'm very aware of the fact that there are a lot of young chastens in this country. And there are older couples just coming into the sunset of their lives who are still living in the closet. Because of fear, you know, of political scapegoating, um, that they just don't feel like it's time for them yet. I would love for us to invest in more of those stories. I'm glad we're having this conversation today.
0: You know, you and I both, as I said earlier, you know, born in Michigan, and um, I actually worked at the Grand Rapids Press for years. In fact, it was my first full-time journalism job. And when I was hired, Jerry Crane was a music teacher in Byron Center, Michigan. And when it was discovered that Jerry was gay, the community basically ran him out of town. And I was hired I think like the year after he died and I was openly gay. And I felt this tremendous responsibility to represent all things gay in the most respectable way possible. And I'm just curious for, for your perspective, you know, once you came out and once, you know, it was known that, you know, the, the, the boy who used to feed the cows in the morning before school was was gay. Did you feel a burden that when you went back to your community, you know, for visits with your family, that you had to Um, represent gayness in a certain way?
1: I mean this with the utmost respect to my family and, and my community. I think I still have to do that because, you know, it's not like there was, you know, post marriage equality. There was a sudden influx of gay people to Traverse City, Michigan, and, you know, they only see so many things they only hear so many things or read about so many things and so that's not to say that people there aren't curious and I think most people there really want to be on the right side of history they want to do well but you know when it comes to things like pronouns this is so foreign and new to them and they have no idea why they're being asked to change something that they have grown up learning for for 60 years right and they think initially some folks think it's very silly and now aren't we just getting too woke and that's your opportunity to say like, hey, 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 you're being a bigot. That's where you say like, well, let me let me explain how it feels mm-hmm. for someone when you use an appropriate time to state your pronouns. And imagine having someone validate your, your presence and your being and your existence simply by saying a couple letters. And then you know that you're in a safe space. And I feel like I'm having a lot of those conversations, not only, you know, in my family or you know, friend groups back home, but just in the community when, especially during campaign season, when we were doing a lot of door knocking and whatnot. And, you know, people go into these conversations, they've got questions, and, and they want to know what's going on. And so I don't mind being, you know, that gay guy t- to answer some of those questions. But by the way, I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm like really privileged to be that guy who can live that life. You know, uh, I've got a roof over my head. I've got a husband who loves me. I've got a family that loves me. And now it's my opportunity to, you know, turn around and and try to just make it a little easier
0: for somebody else. Craziest question you heard knocking on those doors during campaign season. (laughs) Well, that's a book. Um, (laughs) Like, I usually get who's the man, who's the woman. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I just like all the time. If there was a man and a woman, we'd be straight. Why are you asking me this question? I know.
1: I think those are so funny when people. That's that like that's called lazy homophobia, where it's like you didn't. It's like that's not even clever, you know? Like, go breastfeed your baby, or who's the mom and who's the dad? It's just like you know the answers to these questions, or if you actually don't know that, like bottle feeding exists, then you know you're really living under a rock. I remember being on the campaign trail, and this woman asked. Um, in it, actually it wasn't on the doors, it was in a, in a, like a town hall style setting. And I go up there and like the second question, this woman is like, why do you keep talking about being gay? Like, do you guys really need to talk about being gay? Like, don't you think he has a better chance of winning if you guys just kind of stop talking about that so much? It really, it's really stuck with me. Um, this, this sense that maybe we can all just move along, you know, in many different ways. But that's, that's kind of where we are, right? You know, why do you got to talk about it? Why do you got to put it out there? Can't we just kind of move along, which is saying like, can you just exist in a way that makes me feel more comfortable? Um, and those are the conversations that I'm happy to have with other people.
0: But do we need to stop talking about it so much and bleeding people's faces? If you're in small town USA and to your point, they, they being the community around may not be up to speed.
1: Yeah, this is this is the hard thing, right? So you you um, <laughs> you put that little pride flag at the at the end of your driveway, right? Up north, pride. Like I'm an I'm an ally. You know, you go to the mailbox, your neighbor's like, why do you gotta shove that down our throats? Like a little sign, like I, I don't know what three by three sign just to signal to people driving by that you know someone out there loves them and and, and sees them and values them and you know the neighbor the guy, the guy with the 15 trump flags in his yard is like why do you gotta shove that down our throat so the idea that you know this tiny little sign is is being shoved down his throat but his 15 trump <laughs> flags aren't being right. shoved down mine speaks to how people see these issues
0: as completely new still completely foreign it's 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 so weird so we were home for the holidays as well, as you know, we were communicating. We were both happened to be in Michigan at the same time. We, my husband's from Holland, Michigan. You know, he's been dropping hints like this would be, a, you know, maybe it'd be good to come back home, you know, when we get ready to retire, maybe it'd be good to come back home with simpler life, blah, 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 blah. Now granted, I'm from Detroit, so I'm just like going, well, this is your home. I'm from the D, <laughs> <laughs> so this is a negotiation. Yeah. And then we drove by a house that had one of those flags at the end of the driveway that you're talking about, tiny little pride flag. And I think it said like Holland Pride or Holland Equality or something like that. And and for a fleeting moment, I was like, well, maybe, mm-hmm. well, maybe. My question to you is, are you interested when this is all said and done um, in making that similar sort of sacrifice? Do you see yourself, do you see you and Secretary Buttigieg and your children Living full time, maybe in small town USA, or maybe your kids will be grown by then, and you two are just living in small town USA.
1: <laughs> I dream about it all the time. Uh, I love home. I love being close to my family. Um, I can absolutely 100% see myself uh, living there. Um, this idea that we have, you know, we've got to be the change, it's not so much like making an active political choice. I think it's really important that we know that this country belongs to us too. I don't want Mm. queer people to feel like, well, we just got to go. We got to get out because we've lost, you know, we secede Northern Michigan to the bigots. Um, I say Northern Michigan belongs to you as just as much as it does to anybody else, you know, and if, if that's where you want to live, that's where you want to love and grow, go take it, you know, and it's only going to change if we, if we do it and we do it together. And then when we're there, we're lifting one another up and we're supporting one another and, slowly 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 we're gonna make sure that northern michigan is a place where everybody feels like they belong um but
0: i would love to see you in holland i'd love to see you in traverse city actually i mean i could i could maybe do traverse city because of the fishing but i don't know about holland man i'm just gonna be real with you they ain't got no season salt I'll be <laughs> <laughs> It's been... <laughs> I can't find no collard greens. I'm going to have to get my cocoa butter shipped in. I'm going to be honest,
1: LZ, I don't know if we've got that in Traverse
0: City. <laughs> <laughs> I went to this one grocery store, yesterday, and they had the pumpkin spice above the season salt. And I was like, I can't live here. I can't live here. Why is the pumpkin spice on a higher shelf than the season salt? How am I supposed to live? You're like,
1: we've got some, we've, I think we've got some expired old bay in the back. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, man. that. I mean... We'll
0: get there. Justin Boudages, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you so thanks for investing in these conversations and thanks for having me on. And and hopefully we can continue the conversation off the podcast and really appreciate you and admire all your work.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
3: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: Did y'all know that Ariana Bose gets free ice cream for the rest of her life? But Listen, she'll tell you all about it, but just know that this woman gets free ice cream forever, which is crazy. Except, she's already done so many crazy and amazing things already, why not get free ice cream, right? Wow,
2: it's already been an exciting year. I am hosting SNL and I won a Golden Globe for my role as Anita in West Side Story!
0: But one of the things that I really love most about her is the fact that she has such a great affinity for where she came from. It's good to see that the bright lights of Hollywood and the stage and Broadway didn't really pull her too far away from those roots. But we begin our conversation with something I'm really passionate about as well, dance. Because like Ariana, I too grew up taking dance lessons. Unlike Ariana, I wasn't good at it. My favorite dance teacher was Miss White. I still can't call her by her first name, even though I'm 50 years old. I call her Miss White. <laughs> <laughs> and Miss White poured so much into me beyond just trying to work on my technique and lessons that I take with me every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious because you started off with dance as well. Did you have that special dance teacher or was there some other instructor of one of the other many gifts that you have, Ariana? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Whose lessons you carry with you? You
2: know, I don't just have one, I have many. First of all, my mother's an educator. Mm -hmm. And so I've always gravitated towards educators, specifically arts educators. Uh, Elizabeth Dressler and Tammy Holder, they introduced me to the theatrical world and taught me how to use my voice in more ways than one. Um, Shannon Norman was my band teacher in high school.
0: Uh, Wait, and you play an instrument too? Yeah. You know what? I this is not even fair. <laughs> Hold oh, no. up! Stop, stop! 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 Stop the presses! I don't even know if there's a quadruple threat was even a thing. Are you trying to tell me you didn't stop at triple?
2: No, I mean I just really like to be creative. Okay. Put it that
0: way. Well, I don't know what comes at the quadruple. So five druple, I guess. Your five druple threat, I guess. No, that's know. nice.
2: A five druple threat. Maybe I'm just a threat. <laughs> Here we go. Um, but. Yeah, like all of these different folks. I could go on and on and on about all the different educators who have changed my life because they have every single one of them. Um, I believe in arts education so fervently, both private education and public education, because it, it makes such a difference. And I wouldn't have anything that I have without each and every one of those people.
0: That is so beautiful to hear, especially the the love about education, because yeah you know prior to the pandemic i still felt as if people saw teachers as like these highly paid babysitters
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh and how wrong they are <laughs> now that they
0: had to teach their own kids for like a year they're like going oh this ish is hard
2: <laughs> yes it's, it i tell you something it takes a very special person to become an educator a, a true educator because there are teachers and then there are educators and and mm. there is a real difference you are an angel on earth if you actually understand how vital education is. Because you're not just teaching a child about, you know, a subject. You're teaching them how to walk through the world. But I digress.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm listening because I, I agree with you 1000%. Without education, what do you think is going to happen to us?
2: Well, we've put so much value and priority on education and that we've made it so hard to gain access to it. It makes no sense. It's actually the dumbest oxymoron I've ever heard of. And then furthermore, the higher you go in the educational system, the more money you come out owing. It's it's a fascinating thing that we want folks to to pursue higher education, but we don't want to help them pay for it. You know, like nothing in this world comes for free. That is painfully true right. in my eyes. But I don't see why education for ice cream. should be so. Except for ice cream. Except for ice cream. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I do get free ice cream, which is a, the weirdest thing. But it did save my life on several occasions. It's the greatest
0: um, story. We, but when you said nothing uh, comes for free, so I go, "Well, you can coast no, on ice okay. cream for free." So. <laughs> Let's just
2: back up. Uh, oh, I've since uh, remembered that was, they did that dance contest. Coldstone Creamery did that dance contest to promote their new line of shakes and smoothies. And it was called the Shake It Up Dance Contest. And um, I won it. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> but I did. Oh, God.
0: It's so amazing. I, I saw that interview and I was like, "Oh, you got to be kidding me!" And she gets free ice cream. Yeah. She is just flying on cloud nine. <laughs> you, know, you you said so many wonderful things about education, particularly the part about paying mm. for it and you know the mm. you know the cost of it all. And I'm curious, did that factor oh, yeah. into why you decided to leave college after only a couple months or was there some other reasons why you were like going, you know what, this isn't for me?
2: Well, I, I had chosen to go to a state school. I was, you know, I'm from North Carolina and I, I went to a school for a very short time at Western Carolina University. Um, and I loved it there. But by the time I had gotten there, I'd already been a contestant on a reality show on Say so You Think You Can Dance. I'm just a girl from North Carolina whose family has a farm. I ride a tractor with my grandpa. Growing up on a farm makes this experience even more exciting because it's the best of both worlds really. And I'd already had like my first Mm -hmm. taste of what it was to really work in the industry and I sort of felt intuitively I wasn't in the right place. I wasn't arguing with my professors but I knew I had so much knowledge in regards to dance, because that's what I was pursuing. I was pursuing dance and musical theater. And I was like, I know enough at this moment in time for me to go to New York. And thank God it was the right thing to do. Um, It's turned out to be one of the greatest decisions I've ever made. I by no means think that that is the right decision for everyone, but it was the right decision for me.
0: Do you miss North Carolina? Do you miss the rural part of your upbringing?
2: I do. I do. There are days where I miss it, oh, painfully. Because there's, um, I call it like the Carolina way. Things are slower there. You know, I live in a very fast-paced world. Some days I really miss the energy of just letting things take their time. Um, You know, the first thing I learned when I got to New York was you walk with a purpose and you get to where you're going to. This is not a Mm -hmm. space where you... uh, (laughs) You dilly look dally. up or you dilly dally. There's none of that going on here. There is cross the street and keep going. Like um So I miss it in that regard. I do miss the food. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, they certainly don't make barbecue up here like they make down there, that's for sure. But I, I also know that I'm I'm firmly where I'm supposed to be, if that makes sense. But I also know like I, I had a wonderful childhood. You know, I think that's, it's how you know that you, you love a place is you have to leave it, you know, in order to know that what you had, um, makes you value everything. I'm, and I truly do value every, every experience I've had.
0: What was it like for you in rural America as a queer person?
2: Mm, That's a good question. You know, what's interesting is it's not that it wasn't talked about like what it was to be gay or queer, or lesbian or any of any of the rainbow, any qualities of the rainbow. It just, for the longest time, it just wasn't on my radar. What do you mean? I didn't see examples of it. And that sounds crazy, but you know, in New York, you walk down the street, you see a lovely gay couple holding hands or two girls holding hands or some, you know, a couple being affectionate. There, There were no public displays of affection you know, aside from like a child to their parent or their grandparent. Growing up, I just didn't see public displays of affection between same-sex couples. And so therefore, in my brain, it was like it was a real thing, but it wasn't a real thing. Until I really got into the dance world. And the dance world opened me up to my own sexuality. In fact, I think that was my window into discovering parts of myself. Because dances, I speak dance better than I speak English. And it's so easy for me to show care and love for someone, to fall in love with someone through dance, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Um, And that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm attracted to different types of people. And it doesn't matter what their gender is. Mm." And, And this woman is stunning. Her form is beautiful. Her heart is beautiful. Her soul is beautiful. And I was like, oh, so that was like my window into it. But I don't think from a political standpoint, I do feel like queerness was not talked about. And then when I when I when I moved away from North Carolina is when I really got to explore my sexuality, if that makes sense.
0: It it does. You know, there is a study. There's a couple studies out, actually, that estimate anywhere between three and five million LGBTQ people not only live in rural America, but prefer to be in rural America. Mm. And so often when you talk about small town gays or small town queer people, Mm -hmm. it's about trying to escape. Yep. Do you think the appreciation of rural America through the eyes of a queer person is represented in film or television or plays or any form of art?
2: Ah, that is a wonderful question wow okay i don't want to give a definitive answer on that because i my gut and my instinct and my experience of you know the media that i consume would be my answer would be no however i do think i think i should write it i think i need to write that story
0: I think you hey, do as well. You quadruple, 5 Drupal threat. You.
2: <laughs> I was like, wow. Well, <laughs> I don't know that there's a piece of work that has actually stuck out to me. I know that there is a play that is about um, several different lesbian couples, and they—I I, can't—I'm—I'm I'm blanking on the title. And it was about you know the women escaping to a summer house on a lake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the word escape, right? Um, but that's the only thing that's kind of even remotely coming up for me. Um, but I get it, you know. I've I've spent a lot of time in upstate New York in some very small towns and um, filled with beautiful, beautiful gay people. They're my people, and I'm so comfortable up there. Um, but I do find it interesting that we all escape to rural small towns to co- not congregate, but to find peace. I think there's an element of you know the search for peace. Um, in regards to you know what you're talking about, I think. Wow.
0: Um, did you have community? I know you said you didn't see PDAs, and I totally get that. but do you, did you still feel like there was a sense of some sort of queer community as you were growing mm. up?
2: I knew it existed, but if I'm honest, no, my arts community was accepting of any and all people no matter how they identified or if they were, you know gay, straight, otherwise experimenting but i didn't necessarily feel truly feel the sense of community until i was much older
0: there's a element of sadness in your voice is that something you wish you would have had
2: um it's interesting i look back at my childhood and there were so many things i was oblivious to um i had a a wonderful wonderful childhood um but there were just so many things that I didn't see. And I was very focused on dance. Like, dance was my savior. And in a way, it's also the thing that um, shielded me from many things. So it's like, if, if you ask me a question about my dance life at, growing up as a kid, I can tell you anything you want to know. Um, and I know that I, you know, had examples of prejudice come my way, racism come my way. When I attended the prom, I was dancing with a girl. Literally dancing with a girl and you know folks started staring at us and i really knock away and I Just start I danced away from her dance has always been the thing that has saved me if I you know what I mean So i'm like in the course of this interview I've realized that dance has shielded me or allowed me to process emotions And I had artistic sense of community. I'm very clear on that um, but in regards to being a queer person even mm-hmm. someone who was not out as a young person. I didn't feel that sense. And yes, it does make me sad. Um, I think what I just learned about myself is that I i don't wish to use dance as a form of shielding experience. Like I am someone in my adulthood who likes to feel everything, even if it makes me uncomfortable. Um, wow, what are, I just, so many like realizations on your show, my friend. Whoa, <laughs> just blew my mind. Oh my gosh, yeah. I don't know that I answered your question, but that is what I feel
0: in the moment. No, you, you absolutely did. And, and, and I understand where you're coming from. I have an artist background, but I am a writer. That is who I am through and through, mm. have always been or always will be. And there was a period in which I was using my writing as a replacement for my experiencing. Mm. Yeah. And so when I see like an unarmed black person being killed and i'm hurting Mm -hmm. instead of sitting and experiencing the hurt myself i would write and transfer it without actually letting it process first and that sounds Mm -hmm. like that's what dance was like for you
2: yeah it was both a tool it allowed me to process and and also like masked a little bit of it because when i dance i feel like i'm sort of channeling it's a very religious experience for me um when I'm processing emotions, mm. but also there are so many different versions of me that come forth when I am dancing.
0: So which version of yourself did you tap into in your brilliant performance of Anita?
2: Um, the deepest, darkest, most shameful parts. <laughs> you know, I know what it is to try to assimilate in order to feel um, a part of a community. I think I, you know, probably subconsciously did that quite a lot growing up. And that's what that character was doing. And so I I channeled a lot of that into into this person. But I also channeled the joy, the joy that you can feel when you are just truly being yourself. Um, And I think that's what you see in Anita in the d- during the course of America. Lots of new housing with more space. Lots of in our
0: face.
2: I'll get terrace apartment. Better get rid of
1: your accent.
2: <laughs> you know, you get all the nuance of what it is to be this Afro Latina woman walking through through the world during this time. And it's complicated. But she she strides the line, and you watch her actively try to assimilate and make nice with, with the good good white folks. And um, you watch you watch someone try to make it okay that they are being asked to let go of their own culture in order to be accepted in this new place that is supposed to be all accepting. Mamita, didn't you hear me? What are you doing?
0: Ay, Nina. Speak English. In
2: Gimbals, there are lots of dresses that fit me. And you don't shop in gimbals. You clean in mm.
0: I'm hearing you're going to be yeah. a director one day, if you're not already. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think you might be right. I um, I still have a thing or two to learn about directing, I think. Um, but I I'm very curious about that line of work and I think I might be good at it one day um, you know directing is, is such a nuanced position um, as is being a choreographer you know or a movement specialist within the, especially in the context of film or, or uh, on screen work because um, I think you know Tommy Kale our director from Hamilton he said something that stuck with me it has, has stuck with me He viewed his job as he was not responsible for having the best idea in the room. He was responsible for identifying the best idea in the room and making that manifest. And I thought that was so interesting because it had actually cultivated community because you had someone at the top who realized the best ideas weren't always coming from him. And so I've kind of looked for that in anyone that I work with, um, someone who has that realization or has that like belief system. Because I know I I don't always have the best ideas. I'm not always the smartest person in the room. Hell, it's very rare these days because I get to be in rooms with some very smart people. But when I do have something to contribute, I always wanna know that I'm in a space where I can do that and certainly if i were to pursue becoming a director or uh, you know anything in a higher position i would want to cultivate that type of creative space it is important
0: absolutely absolutely ariana thank you so much for your time <laughs> and your talent and good luck the rest of award seasons we're all rooting for you but more importantly we also can't wait to see what you're going to do next
2: my pleasure Mwah.
0: When I came out the closet, I didn't think I would ever fall in love with another woman. Ariana DeBose is challenging that thought. <laughs> She's just that wonderful. When Sarah Kate Ellis became president of GLAAD in 2014, one of the first things the organization did was commission Harris Poll to measure the nation's attitude towards LGBTQ Americans. And people in the South seem to have a different attitude about LGBTQ people than people in the North. And while some of you may be thinking, well duh, it's a good thing that Glad didn't stop there. And its Southern Stories initiative was created to kind of help close that gap between the attitudes of the North and the attitudes of the South when it comes to queer people. I was really happy to talk to her not only just about the initiative and what she's trying to do, we also talked about that show Love Victor and debated which boy he should end up with. Sarah-Kay, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us here on Life Out Loud. And congratulations, this is what, year eight, right, for you as president of Glad? is that correct?
3: That's correct, thank you, yes. It's been an amazing, amazing whirlwind. Um, I can't believe it's been eight years. It feels like it's been one, honestly.
0: H- how has the landscape for this conversation changed from the point in which you started at Glad? to where we are today?
3: That's a great question. So when I started at GLAAD, it was pre-marriage equality. It was leading up to marriage equality. And so that was the largest, I think, national narrative that we were having around the LGBTQ community. And if you can remember that far back, actually, we were using just gay or lesbian or bi and not really um, a holistic look at our community. I think today,, um, as we've seen some wins from, you know, marriage equality, to um, employment protections, although all very, very um, fragile because they've been determined and decided by the Supreme Court, it gives us an opportunity and the ability to be really nuanced around the conversation about the LGBTQ community. And so today, as we talk about rural America and we think about the populations within rural America, so much of the narratives that we are accustomed to are around big city living and LGBTQ people in New York or LA, when 5% of um, rural population is LGBTQ, which makes up 20% of the LGBTQ population. And we know those are are probably grossly underreported, but if you just think of that as a baseline, there's whole populations that really haven't had Um, a substantial and significant narrative around them over the years. And so for now, from when I started, I'm really excited that we can start to have more of these nuanced conversations around our community.
0: I'm so glad that you brought that up about the narratives, right? Because I don't recall, you know, in my teens, 20s, 30s, even into, you know, my early 40s content, that really talked about the LGBTQ experience in a rural area, in which they weren't trying to flee that rural area. (laughs) So it was like, they were trying to leave, nobody was happy to be there.
3: No, I mean, that was the whole thing. It was like the great escape, right? In order to be your true and authentic self and safely was that you had to flee coastally, right? To New York or LA or a larger city, even Chicago. Um, I think that, You know, one thing that we've worked really hard at GLAAD on, and one thing that is sort of the baseline of who we are is representation. We know that representation matters, and that humanizing our community builds acceptance and safety. And so, you know, to that point, Elsie, we're seeing shows now like We're Here, which is on HBO Max, that goes into Selma, Alabama, and Evansville, and there they explore stories of LGBTQ people who live in those rural areas and shine a light on their struggles their challenges and their triumphs right right if you look at 911 Lone Star that tells the story of rebuilding a firehouse in Texas with a main gay love story at the center of it in Texas one of the things that in my eight years here at Glad, that we've worked really hard on um, is, and, and that I see as the central artery to rural America is country music, right? It doesn't get any more um, pervasive than country music in rural America. And so we've had a present at the CMA Fest for several years, but having out artists like TJ Osborne and Lily Rose are game changers for queer youth in rural America. Um, So I'm really excited that we're starting to see that and and across sports. I mean, you could talk about that for hours, Um, but when we start to see major league athletes come out who are active on teams, that has ripple effects across rural America because those are the big things that are focused on in rural America.
0: I I don't know about you, but among my circle of friends, there is still somewhat of a prejudice, if you will, about rural America in the terms of, again, you mentioned the Great Escape. I feel as if a lot of that attitude really is fueled by us internally as a community as well. It isn't just, you know, the hetero world that's like, you know, what are you doing here? But it feels as if a lot of queer people are also asking our fellow members of, of society, "Why do you stay? <laughs> are, am I over-exaggerating, oversimplifying this dynamic?"
3: No, I think I think it's a real question, and I, you know, we at Glad we did a local news accountability index the first time, um, and we did it this past fall. And here, I, I'm just going to support why people think this. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. We looked at over nine Southern states and more than 40 outlets didn't report a single LGBTQ story over 18 months.
0: Wow.
3: So more LGBTQ people live in the South than any other region in the country. And one in five LGBTQ Southerners are Black people facing, as you know, double discrimination as both Black and queer. And they're living in a part Mm -hmm. of the country that is not recognizing that they exist in news. They're not covering their issues and they're not getting their viewpoints. And so the question then leads others, especially even in our own community, if you're not represented, if you don't have a voice, Why are you staying there? And I think what I find from a lot of the great people who live in rural America is because they are raising their voices and they do want to make a change. And people love where they're born and raised and have family and deep roots in places. So oftentimes it's also a question of finance and economics. It's not inexpensive to move to one of the larger cities, it actually costs a lot of money. And so some people are just squarely prohibited because of economics.
0: What can be done to change that dynamic, particularly when you talk about the news coverage? That is really shocking to me that 18 months can go by in this year still, and you may not see any representation reflection of yourself in local coverage.
3: I think it starts with accountability. I think it starts with actually measuring it. I always say you can't move what you don't measure. And so measuring this and understanding how underrepresented our communities are in the South, in this particular um, example, Then we can start to raise our voice. Then we can start to get more people aware of this. We as glad, obviously, will go in and speak with these outlets and speak to the journalists and educate them. We've created a playbook for them for issues that are surrounding the LGBTQ community in the South, especially around HIV. And then it's about people in the area being educated. Oftentimes, you don't even realize it, like you're going on with your own life. Uh, You've got bills to pay, jobs to do, kids to raise, family members to take care of, and you don't know that this is happening or not happening. And so it's really about raising awareness and education among our own community so that they can start to point it out and they become advocates on the front lines as well.
0: Last question for you. And this one might put you on the spot, but we'll see. (laughs) Favorite entertainment component that featured a rural LGBTQ presence?
3: Favorite entertainment, that's broad. I would say um, one of my favorite things recently was um, Love, Victor. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, because it's something that I can sit and watch with my kids and it takes place in any town USA. And I often think of it as one of the stories that we never got when I was younger. And I think it helps our youth today see themselves for the first time, whether or not they live in New York City or Selma, Alabama.
0: I am 1000% with you. I just hope that young man chooses the right love. (laughs) For those of you who don't know how season two ended, there's a big question mark. I'm just hoping that, you know, he chose wisely.
3: Yes, as we all do, as we don't when we're (laughs) teens, do we?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sarah Kate, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and most importantly, your leadership. I mean, who knows where we would be in this conversation as a community if it wasn't for Glad's work over the decades. And you, of course, happy eighth year anniversary and continuing that fight in the honor of Vito and so many other leadership throughout the years.
3: Thank you so much, LZ. Thank you for your leadership. We rely on it. So I love working with you in this fight.
0: Thank you, Sarah Kate, Chasten, and Ariana. I'm assuming you're gonna take me for some ice cream since it won't cost you a penny. On the next episode of Life Out Loud, we speak with not one, but two divas for the music world who've always been there for the LGBTQ community even when it came at a cost.
3: One of the concerns was if you are so outwardly supportive of the gay community, people would think you are gay, meaning me, so I'm like, (laughs) well, if I am or if I'm not, what difference does it make?
0: Let me tell y'all something. Miss Jody Wiley and Miss Stephanie Mills, they do not hold back. Pop radio, It's nothing but popular. Hell, I've been popular all my damn life. And so when I really realized they're not going to play my record, they only played Never Knew Love, because they want you to do so much. They want you to just sell your soul. And I promise you, there are a lot of laughs during these interviews and some music. You don't want to miss any of this. Hey, thanks so much for listening. And remember to hit subscribe if you haven't already. And please, please, please tell your friends, your family, your loved ones, your side pieces, your main pieces, anyone who you think could benefit from listening to these incredible stories from these remarkable people. And also just take a moment to leave us a rating and review that goes a long way to helping us get the word out. And more importantly, keep going. Life Out Loud with LZ Granderson is a production of ABC Audio, produced by my friend, Trevor Hastings. Senior producer is Brenda Salinas-Baker. Our amazing production team includes David Toledo, Vika Arison, and Carrie Ann Thomas. The executive producer of Life Out Loud is Liz Alessi. A big shout-out to Lakia Brown, Joe Moore, Robert Zepeda, Tony Morrison, Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Brusso, Ariel Chester, and Stacia Tashisku. I'm Elsie Granderson. This, this is that, that good, good. good.